on here. Hey, greetings, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the show. And we're here with our guests and the infamous, the famous, the greatest, this free speech advocate, the comedian, the Food Network, most famous host ever, Josh Denny. Hey, Josh, <laughs> welcome on. <laughs> How are you doing? I don't know if most famous host ever. I mean, I, I think there's quite a few that I think I think I'm definitely still in that old Guy Fieri shadow for sure. Yeah, it, uh, well, I mean, that's true. I'll, I'll be honest. My father has actually watched your show a lot, and he also loves watching the show Chopped. And the reason he likes watching it is he likes food, but he also likes to hear the sob stories of like, my grandmother's niece's nephew has cancer. And if I could just win this show, we could start a restaurant. We could pay for the treatment. <laughs> yeah, that is that is reality TV casting to a T. It's funny. My my girlfriend went to tapings of the show uh, Tournament of Champions. I don't know if you saw it, but it's uh, or if you're familiar with it, but it's a, it's like a it's basically like the new Iron Chef. It's like a. Uh, it's kind of like a chopped style tournament on Food Network. Guy Fieri hosts it and they have like all the best chefs in the country and they kind of do this like uh, East Coast versus West Coast kind of tournament. And she was sitting in the audience um, as paid audience. And this is like during COVID. So the audience was maybe like 30 people. She's sitting next to a handful of people and she's predicting every winner. And they're like, how are <laughs> how do you predict the winners? And she goes, it's pretty easy. It's a black person versus a white person. The black person wins. If it's a mother versus a fucking dude, the mother wins. It's all reality <laughs> TV show casting. Whoever has the whoever is from the most oppressed, marginalized group or whoever has the biggest sob story is the winner. It has absolutely nothing to do with who's actually the better cook. And they're like, oh, we don't believe that. And she's like, OK, well, watch me pick every winner. And she literally predicted the winner of every head to head all the way down to the tournament winner because she's done. She's done casting and knows reality show casting. And it's exactly what you said. It's like who has the biggest sob story, who's part of the more marginalized group. She's like, you know, the only place where it gets dicey is when you have a black lesbian up against a, you know, an Indian lesbian. And it's like, oh, God, you know, how do you pick? <laughs> that's that's kind of you know this is really funny josh because do you know what our first fan question that we had for you is what is that what is that the, it said <laughs> what would you be like as an hr manager <laughs> uh, you know it's funny because uh I, I was never really an hr manager but i was a director of operations so i did make a lot of hr decisions and work with a lot of hr people and i'll tell you um you know what's weird is like i you know, and, and people will laugh kind of hearing this, but I was I was somebody who was a very progressive, um, you know, operator just in the regard that I felt by having more diversity, you would have more professionalism. And what I mean by that is like not just diversity in terms of ethnically, but age experience um, and cultural diversity. And so, you know, I always worked very hard on, on my teams, like the last, uh, the last long-term uh, retail job I had as, a, as like operations manager was uh, Crocs. And I had something like 20 stores in the Southwest. And, you know, I, I prided myself on having a really good mix of different managers with different backgrounds, both culturally and professionally. And, you know, that led to a, a better kind of professionalism in the workplace and uh, better competition and therefore better results. 
And so the funny thing is, is like as much as I'm a staunch advocate for free speech and I really don't give a fuck what people do in their free time, you know, I also do believe that getting to diversity the right way in an organic way, and we still always pick the best people. Um, but, you know, you kind of base that off of like the needs of a market. So, for instance, we had a store that was like right on the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm. Well, obviously, I need Spanish speaking people in that store, right? Because that's yeah. that's the community. That's what's necessary. So some of it is just like, you know, I, I think the problem with diversity today is that it's forced and it should be organic, right? Like, you know, if you have a, if you have a business in South central, you know, put in somebody who's from that area or who knows that area or who, who understands that community and, and can be a good, uh, be a good business manager in that community. But, you know, again, if like where we're, where we're running into problems today is like, there'll be somebody at a ski lodge in Montana and, you know, the HR powers the beer, like we should really put a black manager in that location. And it's like, yeah, that person's going to hate Montana. <laughs> They're not going to have anything in common with those people. You know, it's like and so it's one of those things of, uh, you know, as an HR person, you know, I was I think I was pretty level headed and, um, and that is very, so funny and <laughs> very sa- and very savvy um, with with uh, employment law. You know, and, and because, you know, as being a, a kind of a booming company at that time, you become a target for people who want to sue you for everything. And so um, I, I and, and being a manager, like when I was a district manager and I started with that company, I was 23 years old. So I had to really know my shit. And, um, you know, I so, yeah, it's funny. How would I be as an HR manager? I actually kind of was. Um <laughs> <laughs> for a while yeah that's that's pretty int- I, I i gotta ask you so it, i didn't know you worked for crocs so yeah just a little backstory my father once again i keep referencing him he was born with six toes on each foot that's called like polyploidalism nice so he has really he has really wide feet so guess what shoe brand he likes a bunch crocs sure he loves crocs yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's funny is it was a really cool uh i joined the company right after they went public in 2006 and me and three other guys were basically hired to build their whole retail division so they mm-hmm. you know, most of their money was wholesale selling to other retailers and um you know they had had some uh, retail kiosks that were mm-hmm. privately owned and, you know, they bought them all back to kind of get them, you know, on the right, on the right track. And then we basically took those over and we grew it from like 20 kiosks uh, to about 150 locations in the first year. And then, uh, wow. and then we, you know, we started converting some of those kiosks and malls to actual full-blown stores and outlet stores. And so, you know, by the time, I don't know what the actual number was, but I, th- I think it was somewhere like uh, just under 300 retail stores in 2012 uh, or 2009. I'm sorry, when I moved out to L.A. to take over the Southwest market. So I had Vegas, Arizona and Southern California. And um, yeah, I mean, it was that was my best professional experience in my life, like the most fun. And we were very much like an underdog company. Like people, people thought we were the most uncool brand in the world. And that's true. We just kept making fucking money hand over fist. And, um, you know, we were living like Kings on the company dollar those first couple years. And so I guess in a way, uh, I probably have an affinity for that experience because I got to do it with some of my best friends and mentors in my professional life. 
And it's very much sort of like it was very much in the beginning, sort of like an underdog fuck you story of a company. And that's kind of me, right? Like, I love it's being true. part of the fuck you underdog side of, um, you know, of anything. Like Nike, you think we're cool? Well, we made this wide thing out of plastic and it looks like a duck, you know? <laughs> yeah, dude, like, you know, and and I very much, you know, I, I wasn't really involved in the marketing and branding side of the business, but we would be asked to, um, you know, give our two cents on strategies and stuff like that. And I very much had that opinion early on was like, listen, we're about comfort. We're not about cool. And we should be telling cool to go fuck themselves. And <laughs> people thought I was a fucking wild man for saying stuff like that. And then to be a fair now, here we are in 2021 and a big part of their branding is kind of telling cool to go fuck itself. So if they would have, <laughs> if they would have listened to me, you know, uh, 15 years ago when I said it, they'd probably be a hell of a lot further along. And, and it took a lot more expensive, uh, more expensive executives after we all left uh, to come in from companies like Reebok and Nike to, you know, put them on that path. So it's like, you know, we, we told you to do that 15 years ago and you, you wanted to appeal to moms and kids. And we said we should be telling cool to go fuck itself. Um, and they were like, oh, that's too aggressive. We That's not us. That's not our brand. And then we the company almost went bankrupt in like 2000. The, we started 2006. It was almost over in 2008. And if it weren't for the retail side making so much profit, the company would have went under. Because when the housing market crashed yep. and that stock was doing very, very well, at what point my options were worth like 1.2 million bucks. Uh, and so I was a 20, I was a 20, well, no, I guess it was 2006. Yeah. 23 years old. Uh, and I had $1.2 million in stock options. And what happened was, uh, so yeah, this was right, right around my 24th birthday is 2007. I was a year in and I could pull out 25% of my vested options. And our CFO that summer had pulled out like $33 million of stock. And I talked to him at a volleyball event and I go, hey, man, like I couldn't help but notice you kind of emptied the tank on your options. Do you know something we don't know? And he goes, no, nah, the company's doing great. The company's doing fine. Leave your stock in. And then I called my peer, a dude named Drew, and I go, listen, I just talked to Peter and he said, leave it in. And I was like, I'm not leaving in shit. I'm taking out everything I can fucking take out because that's what he just did. And I don't give a fuck what he tells me. Uh, I'm I don't believe him. And what he basically recognized was that despite what the company was doing, the economy was going to take a bath and that people were going to pull their croc stock out to have to cover their hemorrhaging. And yep. so he was smart about that. And I was smart because I followed him. My other bosses were not as smart. They left their money in and their stock options dropped by 50 percent in October of 2007. So the stock you know, we, it went from being, and those guys had way more options than I did. I had 10,000 options valued at like $26 a share. And I sold when it was at 96. Mm -hmm. um, so I pulled out 25% of that. And, um, you know, some of those guys had 20, 30, 50,000 options and uh, 50,000 shares valued at almost a hundred bucks a share. So, uh, and overnight that thing took a bath. And, and uh, you know, it was and it was not for any reason other than what I just said, the housing market crash, people were getting crushed everywhere else. And they used their winnings and the people didn't see Crocs as a long term play. 
So they thought, all right, I made my cash. So now I got to get it out to cover my losses and all this other stuff. Funny like side the, world, the world's getting destroyed. And you're like, you know, a company will make it through Crocs. Yeah. Yeah. We were like the cockroaches that couldn't be killed. Uh, and the funny thing is, is uh, I had a friend. Now, this this makes me sound smart. So I need to correct the, the, the record for anybody who, who's at this point in the story thinking I'm smart. I had a friend named John Lewis, who is a comedian in Minneapolis. Who also happened to work for AT&T and in the and that summer when I took that Crocs money out uh, I bought a new truck and I pulled up to like open mic with my brand new truck and uh, John comes and he goes dude where'd you get the money for this and I told him I was like yeah I pulled my Crocs stock out and he goes listen man uh, he's like I'm not a I'm not some financial advisor but you should take every dollar of that stock money you just pulled out and put it into Apple because they're about to release their first cell phone. And I'm telling you, it's going to revolutionize that company. And I was like, oh, they're going to get destroyed in the cell phone business by Nokia and Samsung. I was like, they'll, you know, I was like, talk about throwing your money away. And if I would have taken the money that I pulled from Crocs and invested it into Apple, it would be worth about six and a half million bucks right now. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh so that's how fucking dumb i was you know i was 23 i was like cool i have a couple hundred grand what a genius i am right and then you know i could have reinvested that money and, and been set for life and you know didn't take the advice of uh you know somebody who knew better than me well in in 2008 it was just a bunch of libertarian geeks that knew about bitcoin and i didn't buy it you know what i mean so oh yeah um, yeah, I have, a, I have a, there's a dude who's a comic. I used to do his podcast all the time and we're not really friends anymore. We don't really speak. But he said that in 2010. He's like, dude, get a put all your money in Bitcoin. And I was like, this is fucking stupid. I'm not putting money into this. <laughs> and, I, you know, I got to be I think he's I think he's worth or at some point made over a million dollars on Bitcoin. So, you know, in, the dude, hasn't had to, dude hasn't had to work in a couple of years. And I, I have. So obviously he knew what he was talking about. In fairness to you back then to like buy Bitcoin, you had to like, like give yourself your computer like a disease by going to some weird exchange in Korea or something like that. And yeah, didn't you some, have to basically mine it to get it back you, then? You, you would mine it or go to like a crazy, like you either mined it, you got it from selling drugs to somebody or doing some, it was, it was not very easy to buy Bitcoin back then so that's part yeah, of what well, i was like looking up yeah. the process i'm like this is crazy you know well wasn't it kind of born at the same <laughs> time and i could be way wrong about this but wasn't it kind of born at the same time and out of the same sort of um underbelly web culture that was was the silk road so you yeah, know I, that's I, that's true there's there's a book on it called american kingpin where this kid just decided to start selling drugs online. Yeah. He, well, he built it all himself. Yeah. There's a it's movie. Crazy. <laughs> there's a movie that just came out based on that book. Um, so I do want to, I want to see that because um, you know, it's, it's a cool story, but yeah, he basically created the, the internet black market. Yeah, he, he did that. And the other wild thing is when they caught him, he was like living in the crappy shack in san francisco okay and he was worth hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bitcoin so kind of interesting stuff weird dude mm-hmm. yeah right? and i believe i believe the government seized all of his fucking money and and correct that. <laughs> it's like well, how does that work <laughs> well this is elite this i didn't i didn't know i didn't know we'd end up talking about asset forfeiture but here we are <laughs> yeah it's so do you know, so do you, know you could this is a real bit you could do if you look this up 
cops seized more money this last year than criminals stole money. You can look that up. Doesn't surprise that crazy, me. Josh. Doesn't surprise <laughs> me. You know, it, it is so funny. It's like, listen, we know you did all this hard work to make this money in nefarious ways. And thanks for doing that. We're going to take it and just hand it to the government. Like, I don't even understand. You know, it's just it, to me, it's no different than organized crime. Well, I mean, maybe I'm just I know a guy who is a drug dealer and he got caught with like 50 pounds of weed, which it, I'm out in Utah, which is in Utah. That's like, I mean, California, I guess doesn't matter. Utah's a big deal. The cop just took his cash. Okay. And just left him away. Well, he didn't even get a ticket. Is that wild? Cause he had cash on him. He took all the cash and just walked away. <laughs> uh, that sounds like something that sounds like an episode of the shield, right? <laughs> like that's just, you know, and it's that's kind of wild that, in here. That's about kind it. of the world we live. You have. It's like, what are you going to do? Report that your illegal money got taken by a police? I mean, you know, there, there's all kinds of corruption in, uh, in law enforcement and the government, and you know that's why I kind of laugh when people talk about like, oh, we need police reform. It's like, yeah, this thing's rotting from the head, and you are all the way down at the toes, deciding which one to cut off first. Yeah, I think we all we all need some more Andy Griffin cops, not cops that are like ex decorated Marines that want to go like raid houses. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no offense, but okay, I I still have a few few more fan questions, real quick. What was your favorite car when you were in grade school? Man, favorite car when I was a kid in grade school, I would have to say, um, I mean, isn't it a Ferrari for every kid who grew up in the late 80s, early 90s? I'd say like no. that late that late 80s, early 90s Testarossa. OK, what color? Red, of course. Oh. <laughs> OK, there we go. I don't even know. Um, if they, do they make them in other colors? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do, Josh. Yeah. But, um what do you think? Uh, sorry, this is the next question. It said, would you ever start your own cooking show and call it Get Fat With Me, Eating With Josh? And if you did so, how could your woke haters uh, make fun of you for your uh, body composition and stuff like that? That's the you know, question. It's, it's so funny that they, they try to do that now. They try to be like, you know, you're fat. It's like, yeah, I got I got a fucking television show because I'm fat. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I'm one of the few fat people. And, you know, what's funny is I always felt like when the, the a lot of the criticism, you can go back to uh, like if you find the trailer for the show or different things on mm -hmm. Food Network's um, social media pages. What's amazing is that so much of the hate was just that people were like, what's why is this fat piece of shit on TV? Give me a show. And it's so funny <laughs> how everybody like just hated that a regular looking person got a television show. And so it's you hear these people complain all the time about it's uh, unfair beauty standards or the fact that you know, uh, everybody, everybody should be told that they're beautiful or whatever. But when you put an overweight, regular guy on TV, those same people lose their mind because now uh, they're not winning from the new standards of beauty or whatever. Right. And so rather than sort of like a biggest beautiful reaction to me getting a show, it's who's this nobody fat fuck and why don't I have a show? So it just exposes how full of shit everybody is about that stuff. I'm, I have I, I am looking at doing, by the way, there was a before the whole canceling of 2018 led to a lot of my development stuff getting smashed and getting dropped by my agency. 
um, I was out pitching a show that I think is like really the best idea for sort of a, a travelogue food show. And um, I was I was pitching it like literally before, like the week before uh, everything blew up on the Internet. I pitched this show to Magical Elves, who's the production company that makes Top Chef. And, uh, you know, we were ready to talk about numbers, like get into actually doing the show and doing a budget and everything else. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's a lot more difficult to kind of do this stuff on your own. But then in the same regard, it's also not, you know, like we made my show with a crew of seven people and our average budget for our show, like filming all the way to post production production mm-hmm. was probably like 50 or 60 grand a show. Now to even, even with some of my controversial views and lack of uh, mainstream popularity, because I don't pander to nonsense, I could probably find a, a conservative brand out there that would yeah. hand me that money to make that show and put it on YouTube and uh, and we would be able to make the same caliber show probably for half the money because we're not paying fucking producers who don't do anything um, and and put it out for free on the Internet. So that's probably what we're going to do. Obviously, I've got the new show on Censored TV, which is kind of more like a web clip show. But, yeah, mm-hmm. there's uh, you know, I, I the part of the thing. I love the food aspect and the people aspect of doing ginormous food. And one of the big creative differences I had with the network about the way we did the show was that we didn't when there was a good human story there, we didn't dive in and we didn't show it. Their shows are so cookie cutter that every show looks the same. And I was like, well, we've got some really interesting chefs and some really interesting people. Like, let's talk about that in the episode. (laughs) And they were like, no, that's not your show. And then when funny. When season two rolled around and the numbers started to dip, they're like, yeah, people, you know, people are tuning out. And I go, is it maybe because every show is exactly the same and we're not doing what I said? So, you know, it's you do you do realize after a while that uh, it's kind of like the old saying, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And if you want to if you're a creative person and you have this vision for something and you say this is what will make it better and nobody's listening to that, then you're working for the wrong people or with the wrong people. Interesting. And that's, and that's kind of where that show came to an end. There's this weird uh, fictitious myth out there that I was fired by the Food Network. They just chose not to renew our contract because I wanted producer credit and producer control over the show going into year two. And I also wanted the money that came with that. And and, our, and we deserved it. Our show was like the, the best premiered show in about a decade for the network. We were doing over a million viewers an episode, which is unheard of. Like Hannah Hart, for example, ha- had a show come out around mine. And so did uh, Jeff Dunham. And they're both two people that are way more famous than me. And their shows did half as much viewership as mine. So and they both were executive producers and they both were making about three times what I was making to do their shows. So I came in going, I want to make double, but I also want to have enough creative control to say, hey, if this person's really interesting, let's spend more of the episode talking about them and not looking at a mediocre donut burger, which is really (laughs) not that interesting. Right. And, uh, you know, you would have thought I asked for all of King Midas's silver. (laughs) Wow. I mean, they, they, they treated me like I was being Mariah Carey and being a diva. 
And I'm just like, well, you're telling me that the show's not working. So I'm telling you, let me get paid based on whether or not the show works. I was literally asking for meritocracy and they wouldn't give it to me because you can't be a subservient bitch in a meritocracy. And that's what they want. They don't want they don't want creative people making great decisions. That's what they do. And that's where they get their money from making the decisions, whether they're right or not. And so. You know, everybody, everybody has to sort of justify their existence. And even if they're not very good at what they do, you know, they're not going to step aside and let somebody else collect that check. That's actually a, that's a kind of fascinating point you brought up. Cause I've worked at companies where like, for example, I worked at a company, there was a sales team. We had one rep who like went to college one semester and was beating all these Ivy league guys and they didn't know what to do with them. And they refused to promote him because we can't promote him. It's like, People put people in buckets and uh, this company, they were uber liberal. Okay. And it's like, oh, we just hired this guy to hustle for people. Why is he beating our Ivy League graduates in the same position? No, we can't promote him. Uh, Let's just pay him some more money to be in the same job. It's kind of an interesting thing. But yeah, I ran into that at Crocs. (laughs) I ran into that at Crocs. That's why I left in 2012 because, uh, you know, I, 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 I never went to college. I basically started working in retail management, like right in high school and then uh, and then moved my way up the ranks very quickly, was a district manager for Hollywood video stores at 21 years old and then was recruited away to go to or to Crocs at 25 or 22. Sorry, Uh, this is 2005, 2006. So I basically turned 23 the summer after I moved from Hollywood video to Crocs and the Hollywood video guys. Uh, the Crocs guys were Hollywood guys, like my mentors there, and they just brought me over. But uh, I got to a point at Crocs where I was like beating everybody's ass. And I was like, so what do I have to do to get to the next level to be, you know, director of operations? And uh, they were like, you just can't because you don't have a college degree. And I go, but I do this job better than everybody that has college degrees. So what the fuck is that? That's interesting. And but then so, in other companies, it's like you didn't go to the right college, so we can't promote you too. That's yeah, so you know stupid. I mean? You know, that's I that's why <laughs> I do like guys like Mark Cuban who are like the you know, college degrees are overrated. And they really are. Having a college degree in this day and age is one of the most overrated things to put on a resume because you know, I'll give you an example. I have my girlfriend went to college and has a master's degree, and um, that's because she's a very good student. You know what I mean? But her practice, yeah. but because she spent all of her young adult life in academia, she came out of college with very little life or work experience. So, she, you know, it took her a while to get into jobs and to find her stride and to find out what she's good at and everything, by the way, had nothing to do with what she got her degree in. And meanwhile, I didn't go to college, had to learn real problem solving things much faster. And so was able to get into a job, work very hard, um, problem solve things at a high level and advance in my career. So, you know, when you're looking at what it takes to get a degree, you know, being a good student doesn't necessarily make you a good leader. You know, that's a completely separate skill. But to be honest, like I was a bad student because I have leadership qualities. Like I question authority. I question what I'm told. I am not afraid to um, take a different point of view. I'm not afraid to have a different opinion. I'm not afraid to challenge authority. So all the things that make you a bad student make you a good leader. 
And all the things that make you a good student make you a bad leader. And so when you think about a college degree, when it comes to leadership positions, it's almost like the more you time you spend in academia acquiring a great degree, the less you the less good you would be as a leader of a company because of the personality traits it takes. Now, discipline and where she kicks my ass is discipline and follow through and time management and some of those things and focus. Um, but at the end of the day, like, but these people also, and not just her, everyone I worked with, with that same kind of story, they, they suffer from paralysis of analysis. They can never pull the trigger. They're always studying things and they always want to come back to it. And they always want to, you know, they're afraid to make a fucking decision because they need more information. And it's like, at some point you got to move forward. And so you end up with these two very different types of people. And again, I liked having a mix um in my on my teams and that's why we were so successful like we we had the best comps every year we had the best labor budget every year i also somehow living in los angeles uh and having stores in southern california arizona nevada still spent less money on my managers than everywhere else in the country and i did that on purpose because i wanted to prove that that was a myth that, you know, when I came out to this market, they go, oh, well, you know, you just you have to pay managers 80 grand a year to get any good people. And I go, no, you're just not getting the right people. And I was able to cut the, the payroll budget in half and outperform uh, everybody that was here before that that was making more money. And that was just a, that was that wasn't a goal that I was given. It was just a personal goal of mine to be like money has nothing to do with ability. And part of the problem is they would go out and get people that had these like four year business management degrees or MBAs. And they couldn't yep. manage. They, they thought they were above doing the actual work. So you're better off getting a 21 year old kid who was like me, who didn't go to college, who doesn't really have a career path and give them a career path and make them feel like they have purpose and make them feel like they're part of a team and give them books and skills. And uh, next thing you know, you got a badass fucking manager who's making, you know, 40 grand a year, who's a 21 year old kid. And that money's great for them because they still live at home. <laughs> That's wow. Maybe you missed your, your career path, man. You should be a, uh running some giant uh, retail chain, right? Yeah, I mean, comedian. you know, I, I, I always enjoyed that work. And and uh, by the way, though, it's funny you say that because I tried to go back to that in 2019. And then um, my second, I was director of operations for Travis Matthew for a day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because a girl who knew about my, my, com my canceling as a comedian on social media in 2018 complained to HR, about that and then uh they fired me because uh i said fucked up things as a comedian so uh you know it's it's kind of wild the world we live in so to you know to kind of answer your maybe you missed your calling well yeah it's too late now because we live in in wokesville where you know nobody can separate uh art from reality and so everything i say as a comedian now is taken like a, you know it's from a documentary about my life and every joke i've ever made is a real opinion that i have and a point of view that i have and so you know there's no no there's no room for um satire or anything else in that process so now you know it would be impossible for me to go to work uh for one of these companies, because, you know, anybody now it's, it's, that's the thing about not being, not being famous enough and, or not being rich and famous, just being famous enough uh, to be infamous. 
And so, <laughs> you know, that's that's the that ship has sailed of going to work for somebody else. But, you know, interesting. Their loss, like I could go work for somebody like, you know, like Mark Cuban or Marcus Limonis, and they would make a lot of fucking money by listening to a smart person like me. But they would never take the PR heat from hiring somebody that half of the Internet thinks is a Nazi. Interesting. Um I was going to ask you, you mentioned books earlier. This actually is a questions as well. We had some minute. What, what is your favorite business book, Josh? Um, yeah, I would say there's a book by Dorothy Leeds called the seven powers of questions. And it will come. If, if you read this book, it's like a paperback. It's like maybe 200 pages or something, maybe 300. Uh, and even if you're not in business, I tell people like, if you read this book and really read it and, and pay attention to what's said in it, it not only will change your, your work life, but it'll change your entire life because it really talks about, um, it really breaks down listening and, mm -hmm. and really how to communicate with people. And, um, you know, and to be honest, it's been long enough that I, since I've read it, I should probably go back and read it again, but um, I think that this that book was the one who really made the rubber meet the road for me, not just in my professional life as a business leader, but as a for just my interpersonal skills with people about understanding the power of asking people questions. And it sort of like gets you to a point where you start talking like a lawyer, <laughs> where you're sort of like, isn't it true that, no, but no, it's not like that, but it's, it, and it really, you know, that kind of coupled with a couple other books really um, is what I think set me on the path to being a successful business leader and, and being now a successful entrepreneur is, is um, you know, it, it's sort of like, shedding your ego and being willing to ask questions of people that do things better than you and, and be mm -hmm. humble enough to know that, you know, you could save yourself a lot of time by asking somebody who's an expert at something you know nothing about rather than trying to clunk through it yourself out of stubborn pride. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a book that not many people, you know, people talk about all the kind of the same ones all the time, the seven power, the, uh, seven habits of highly effective people. And um, you know, that's kind of more, you know, I think that's more into the director and C-level stuff. And then when you're talking about like really young people, I mean, at, first of all, the one minute manager should be required reading for every person under the age of 25. Um, and just in talking about consistency and how you communicate and manage people. Um, and But yeah, I, I basically, one of the HRE things that I did was build the sort of leadership curriculum for manage, store managers. And, you know, those books um, were all part of it. And every promotion you had, you had to read, you know, two or three books before I would promote you into a position because I wanted people to have the tools. And, you know, you couldn't even have keys to a, to one of my stores without reading the one minute manager. And, um, you know, you couldn't be a store manager for me without reading a couple other books. The other one that I really like is the Fred factor, um, which kind of, uh, <clears throat> kind of talks about, you know, having a positive mindset and understanding that, you know, no matter what you're dealing with, that you still have the power to be the bright spot in somebody else's day. And it sounds like very rah, rah, but, you know, I think when you're in business, you, you, t you are taking on that responsibility. Like if you're doing anything that's facing customers, I mean, that, that needs to be 
your perspective is, you know, like we have the opportunity to be the best part of this person's day and not the worst part. And so how do we do that? And, um, you know, so that was something we had a very kind of hospitality mindset um, in all of my retail businesses that I managed. And, um, you know, I think that served us very well. But those are those are the big ones. I also like the other 90 percent. Um, you know, that book is a little bit deeper about, um, intuition and psychology and, um, you know, human intelligence and biological intelligence. And so, um, that one is, I think a little bit more helpful in understanding yourself. So yeah, there's a, there's a handful of them there. I just gave people to check out. And those are ones that I don't think are like the common business books that get referenced in all the time. You know, oh. six Sigma guys, you know, have you read seven habits? Yeah, I did when I was fucking 19. and it's it's 50 years out of date i think if your haters are tuning into this podcast they're going to be shocked because you're like oh wow josh was a human he worked up through a normal job and reads these books and uh he made a fart joke that i was offended by (laughs) well you know and and, and now he's talking about business books (laughs) yeah and and sometimes honestly like uh you know my my passion for comedy was born out of being a 23 year old dude having to be in these very serious settings and i was you know you think of all these oh boy this meeting would be real fucked up if i said this or you know god i would get fired if i said this and so you're like wait a minute there's a place where i can go on stage and say all this shit that i think every day and that's kind of like where it was born out of you know i started doing comedy when i was 26 uh or not 26 i was uh 24 uh, no, I was 23. It was uh, January of 2007. I moved to L.A. when I was 26. But it was like, you know, seven, eight months into the Crocs gig. And that was even after five years at Hollywood Video, working my way up to corporate ladder. And so I basically had spent my time, you know, watching everything I said as a young adult when most other young adults are out drinking and partying and fucking around. And so for me, comedy was that release. And when I found it, I never let it go. That's, uh, that's actually really, really interesting. Um, one of the, the big questions that I had was, and you've mentioned this a little bit kind of on Twitter, is uh, what's the typical breakdown for how comedians make money nowadays, Josh? And then what do you think the future is going to be? And then the, the third part of this, you can answer all these if you want, is what's the ideal job for a comedian to have that's young and up and coming and trying to make it in the industry? Um, okay. So I will say this, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know when I make some money. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that I will tell you, uh, you know, the best financial advice I could give to comedians is you got to diversify, you know, and I think I, what you're probably referencing is, uh, I'm, I put a tweet out maybe within the last week where I said, I, after the, through the pandemic, I, yeah. I went from having like a couple streams of income to, um, seven different streams of income and uh, they're not all entertainment related. Um, you know, I, I make some money, uh, playing online poker. Uh, I, I make money off my podcast. I make money off my albums. Uh, you know, I make a little bit of, I make now make money doing my show for sensor TV. And so, you know, I've got a, a bunch of different things. And then of course, live standup gigs. Um, so there's a lot of different ways. I will tell you, if you look at the really highly successful people, the people who uh, who don't have to do all those different things, um, you know, it's really about building a podcast um, that um, 
I'll give you I'll give you these guys as an example of guys that I think really fucking crushed it and and are you know they're not the Tim Dillons or the Andrew Schultz's who you could argue their podcast following is like 90% they're just they're extremely distinct personalities and or maybe we could call it 70% and 30% the Joe Rogan effect which is you know when, when you're kind of blessed by Joe Rogan you get to go on his show and you're also a very unique entertaining charismatic person that becomes like business wildfire you know going on Joe Rogan for comedians is like going on Shark Tank for a startup you know what i mean it's like whether yeah. you get a whether you get a deal or not your your website's going to crash the next day and you're going to sell out of everything you have in inventory. So um, that's kind of like the, but you can't, you can't plan on being a guy who gets tapped by Joe Rogan. That's not a really good business model. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of comedians didn't get that memo and they packed their shit and moved to Austin and they're just waiting for waiting to get called up to the bigs. <laughs> Wait, you're, are, are you really telling me that people moved to Austin because Joe Rogan went there? A hundred percent. Yeah. And what Tim Dillon just did a beautiful rant on it on his podcast this weekend about like, uh, you know, a lot of the, he's like, a lot of these people were losers in Los Angeles and they're going to be losers in Austin. Um, and you know, and, and really they, they, they think that because Joe Rogan is going there and is going to open a club and is, is going to draw this attention to Austin that there's somehow going to be an opportunity there for them. And that mindset is just the wrong mindset to have as a comedian of like, think about that. You're going, how do I get closer to other highly successful people so that I can maybe catch some runoff instead of learning how to do this thing on my own and build something that's my own. And I, I started to say this a minute ago. So the guys I really love right now that are kind of on the climb are H Foley and uh, God, I'm, I'm I'm I don't want to mess up his name. Uh, Kevin, I think, is the other guy's name. Um, but they have a podcast called Are You Garbage? Kevin Ryan, um, H. Foley and Kevin Ryan. And uh, they you know, this is a great concept for a podcast. They literally are like, OK, well, we kind of feel like we grew up as white trash. And so we'll bring on comedians and other people and we'll ask them a series of questions to find out if they're garbage or if they're classy. And uh, then they got, <laughs> then they got their fan. Like, so as the podcast built, they, they said, Oh, we could go on Patreon and get people to uh, submit their own questions about, you know, which are, which are basically questions to test guests on whether or not they're classy or trashy. So they have this great individual, this like great podcast concept that is unique they have a 360 business model around it, which engages fans because now they get to be clever and ask their clever questions. Like one of them, one of them I saw in an episode I watched last night that a fan submitted was like, did your front door open directly into your living room, which is such a you don't even think about it until you're thinking about it kind of question. <laughs> and they're loaded with these great things. And so these guys are on Patreon. Shout outs to them. And, uh, you know, I think they're now to the point where they're making like 10, 15 grand a month just off their uh, Patreon, which is great. Um, but, you know, they're guys who a year ago or two years ago were still working day jobs and they found this niche that is very much who they are. It's very much on brand for them. And then they they built a podcast that is such a it's one of those concepts I looked at. I was like, God, what a beautiful, simple 
idea for a podcast. And, and, but the reality is you do have to put that much thought into it because just getting together and talking about stand up with your friends is not a viable podcast. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like what Corinne and Christina did with guys. We fucked like they found a niche. They found an angle that was an interesting angle that people wanted to listen to. And so, you know, I think um, you got to make something that is uniquely you and and separates you from the pack. And, and that should be your business. And being a, a performing stand up comedian now has to be viewed as the secondary stream of income to that. Um, and the other advice I would give people is no matter what you do, whether it's a web series, whether it's a podcast, you have to own it. You have to do it somewhere where you own it and you are the person who collects the money for it. And that has to be the foundation for your business. And then what clubs or what venues decide to work you as a comedian becomes secondary. What TV networks, um, are willing to give you becomes secondary, you know, you really do have to build your structure like a guy like Tim Dillon, where the Tim Dillon show is his baby and it's what pays the bills and what it's what makes all of his money. And touring is nice money, but it's secondary to that. And if if television or Hollywood wants to get him involved in something, that's fine. But he has the creative freedom and the financial freedom to tell them to go fuck themselves if the deal isn't right or if he's just not interested in the project, whereas like. You know, when a ginormous food comes along to a guy like me, who's at the time driving Uber uh, and, you know, doing rideshare gigs, of course, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever you want to pay me to get me to do something that's not this. Right. And so yeah. to answer your other question, I think gig economy stuff is the absolute best shit to do uh, if you want to be a comedian, you know, drive Uber, drive Lyft, do DoorDash, do, you know, Uber Eats, do these different gig jobs. And I'll tell you why, because now we live in a society where if you're pro if you're doing anything to be funny, uh, you are cancelable um, by today's standards. And so you cannot work in a law office. You cannot work in these places because I'm going to tell you, if you behave enough to stay employed at your law office job, your comedy sucks. And so if you're going to do anything that anyone is ever going to be interested in, you need the freedom of not working for someone who can fire you because they don't like your material. And, uh, you know, and that's that's kind of where we're headed, where you 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 really have to understand that as a comedian, you are self-employed no matter who happens to be paying you at the time. And you have to really have that mindset. That's a uh, that's incredible, man. Um Kind of a, I guess the last question for the podcast is what do comedians invest their money in and do any of them actually plan for the future? <laughs> Such a great question. Well, I'll tell you what most of them invested in is pot edibles and, and booze, um, <laughs> which are, which are not really, and I don't even mean that they invest them in like, cannabis companies or uh brewer i mean know, they brew actually just spend their money on that yeah it'd actually be smart if they invested in those things but no that most comedians live with day-to-day -day. um and the most brilliant ones you know have absolutely no financial prowess whatsoever i mean i could tell you um you know, I, I, I think right now you're seeing because comedians are talking about it, you're seeing a lot of them invest in things like Bitcoin or whatever. But I always tell people 
um, when it comes to investing, invest in stuff that you're actually interested in. Um, you know, don't just try to invest to make money uh, because unless that's your profession, unless you're going to be a day trader, don't do that. Um, invest in stuff you're interested in because chances are you're, you're going to know enough about it to make informed decisions. And then, uh, you know, you'll get your money out at the right time or you'll put it in at the right time. But if you're trying to track the stock movement of an industry that you have no connection to or no interest in, you're more, much more likely to make mistakes. You know, I have, I had friends like 10 years ago who were like, yeah, we're in this, we, we invested in this medical supply company. And I'm like, you, dude, you don't even go to the doctor for a, a fucking, <laughs> you know, a broken leg. <laughs> and, you, and now you're telling me you're going to invest in a medical supply company. I mean, you, you know, these people get these tips from like their friends who are day traders or stock traders. And then they try to like, they try to just copy what they do without having a real understanding of, you know, what makes, what even makes that industry work or not. So um, that's my only investment advice is to invest in things that you like and are interested in or companies that you're, you're going to, you know, be familiarized with as their business ebbs and flows. And then, you know, just try to stay up on the, uh, on the trade news and, and you'll do fine. But I think nowadays people are way too diverse in how they invest their money. And I think they, you know, they kind of just chase, you know, people with, especially with like the wall street bets thing, you know, yeah. people are just chasing. Yeah. People have never fucking bought stock in their life on Robin hood, trying to buy $10,000 at a GameStop. And it's like, dude, you're going to take a bath on that because you're already too late. <laughs> you're already too late. You know? Yeah. So the if you're chasing, in, you're just following. <laughs> yeah. I got the, the person who told you that you need to get into fucking AMC stock. They're the last person that's going to make money. And you, now your generation of people are already underneath. Like it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you're at the casino and you're, and you're like, Oh, well, what's all that hooting and hollering over there at that craps table. Let me go over and see if I can make money. And then you end up cool in the whole fucking joint off. Uh, it's cause you missed it. Like, don't, don't ever go over there when other people are on a heater and think you're going to, you know, siphon some of the dough you're going to ruin it for everybody. So I don't know. I've always taken sort of a, uh, a casino approach to gamble or to uh, investing. And I think it's kind of served me well, um, you know, but, you know, to be honest, if I would have followed that Apple advice, um, you know, I, and but the funny thing is the reason I didn't is because I thought I did know that uh, I did know that industry well, and I'd be willing to bet that there were a lot of stock people who agreed with me. That was like, you know, Apple almost lost Apple almost went under as a computer company, like in yeah. the 10 years before they, uh, they came out with the iPhone, well, uh, you know, they had the iPod, which basically saved Apple. And then, uh, you know, nobody really pitched their cell phone business, though. It's like, yeah, we're just going to make an iPod that you can make phone calls with. Um, if they would have announced it like that, I might have had a different perspective. But this idea that they were just going to start making cell phones before you actually saw the phone, you were like, they're going to get crushed because these all these other companies have been the cell phone companies forever. Yeah. I mean, it's the same like nobody, if you had told me as a little kid, like, yeah, Barnes and Noble get destroyed by Amazon, I would have laughed. You know? Oh, you would. <laughs> yeah, you would have laughed them out. You know, if you would have told me that AOL wouldn't exist in 10 years um, when the Internet first came out, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. They are the Internet. Who else is putting <laughs> CD-ROMs in my mailbox? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my 
my gosh. Uh, Josh Denny, uh, thank you for coming on. It's actually uh, some insights about you that I, I didn't know, and I don't think it's widely known that you're a former, you know, croc, big time, big wig, and helped sell, you know, a bunch of stinky-feeted, big-footed people like my father, Jews, you know. <laughs> yeah that was one and yeah the video stores before that and then uh you know sean it was sean john for a short amount of time after crocs and then you know the, the and i i thought the sean john thing for like two years was short-lived and then i went to travis matthew for two days so uh, yeah i've i've done you know quite a few gigs and i've had pretty good paying jobs for a young guy who never went to college um you yep. know i was making like six figures before um you know, before my 25th birthday. So I, I did pretty well. The The least amount of money I've ever made is as a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, like when it, when they did, when they were doing the contract for the ginormous food show and they told me what I was going to get paid, uh, they started much lower than we ended up at. And we still ended up at about 4,000 an episode. And so I go, wait a minute. So you're telling me if I do 25 episodes in a year, I'll basically make almost what I was making at my job. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> what happened to the, the getting on TV, making you rich. And one of my good buddies is uh, Mark Summers, uh, you know, former double dare host and unwrapped host and the original host of uh, a food network star. And he goes, yeah, man, that TV money is not what it was in the eighties. That's for sure. It is way different now. And the only way you really make money in television is if you if you have a hand in the production side, um, which is which is no surprise that most of what Mark does now is production. Interesting. Josh, Danny, everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Josh, for coming on. You have a great rest of your day, man. <laughs> yeah, you too, man. Thank you. Everybody give Josh, Danny, if you if you like it doesn't matter where you are politically you can get a kick out of following Josh on Twitter. Okay. And where else can people find you, Josh? I mean, I'm going to talk about your on locals or where, where do you want people to follow you at? Yeah. So they can find everything at joshdennycomedy.com. Uh, but yes, you can support me directly on locals. That's another revenue stream, by the way, thanks for bringing up locals, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of like a Patreon, but it's owned by Dave Rubin and there is no deplatforming on uh, locals. So that's why I went with them instead of Patreon or one of these other, uh, you know, only fans or something like that. Um, so they can support me on locals, um, which is just joshdenny.locals.com. And then, of course, I have a new show called uh, Next Week Tonight, <laughs> which is a not a current events show, but a future events show, uh, which you can watch on censored.tv. And that comes out every Friday night. Okay. That's awesome, Josh. You're the man. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, man. Thanks.